Here's the word of God. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel hair, camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. No person is altogether a clean slate, and that includes me. As a preacher, I'm called to preach to you the scripture and the whole counsel of God, but I do so every week with a certain amount of of burdening on my heart for one particular issue or another. Usually, it's on the text that I'm preaching on. Any given week, that's where uh, my focus is. Of course, there's multitudes of things going on in the world that as a Christian I'm concerned with. But I think one of the prolonged convictions that I've had as a preacher and concerns that I've had, and you may, may have picked up on this in my preaching, is regarding the, what's called either the sacraments or the ordinances. I'm fine with both of those terms. As a Baptist, I'm supposed to use the term ordinance but I also am comfortable using the term sacrament, rightly understood. And because of that, uh, because of that burden that I have, as I come to this topic this morning, which we come to not as a a matter of uh, my will, but as a matter of where the scripture has brought us, we come to the issue of baptism. I'm going to tell you up front uh, that I am passionate about baptism, not because of the name Baptist, That name came about 1,600 years after Christ was on the earth. Of course, I'm going to be in trouble there, too, as a Baptist. Some people think, oh, no, it goes much further back. Uh, But that's where I stand on that. I'm convinced that we have too low a view of baptism in the modern church and the Lord's Supper. That's why when we observe the Lord's Supper in a few weeks, I'm going to preach and teach, God willing, scripturally of the importance of the value of the Lord's Supper. And that's why today as I come to you and I'm going to preach to you on the importance of baptism as seen in Mark's narrative, and we'll, we'll spread our wings out a little bit from there, uh, I really have an urgency that you, if you have been baptized, that you delight in your baptism. And if you haven't been baptized as a believer, that you delight to be baptized, that you pursue it with joy and with urgency. I want us to have the same urgency with regards to our baptism as the scriptures have with regards to it. We are indifferent as modern people often to the spiritual elements of the scriptures. But let let me tell you this, that's not very new. 
we often think that being modern is new and we are reminded in Ecclesiastes that there's nothing new under the sun. Every generation thinks they're the modern generation. And everything is new to them, and everything is different, and everything revolves around them. We're very self-centered as human beings. And I've said it a few weeks ago that if we only knew how old the scriptures were, we would appreciate them a lot more because they're lasting. They speak truth that abides a lot. Well, a lot is not a way to put it. This age will not abide. This modern world will not abide. I love reading in our text that John is wearing camel's hair and a leather belt because a thousand years before that was the style that John the Baptist put on. And we see a good picture there of what doesn't last nowadays. Nowadays, the style changes every few years, every few, you gotta have a new house, you gotta have a new trim design, Art Deco's now coming back into style. I don't know if you knew that in your houses now. So, Kyle, when you're building, think about that now with your next house. But it just shows you how frivolous we are with time nowadays. Everything has to be about immediate satisfaction and and, and we're so urgent of the time, and we think that's where everything matters most. And the very fact that that urgency waxes and wanes so quickly teaches us to step out of our modern mindset. And as Christians, we have the joy of stepping into something that lasts when we do so. The scriptures. So I'm prayerful that we will be taught of the urgency and the importance of baptism from a source that hasn't changed in 2,000 years on the matter. Although we have changed a lot. First, I want us to turn to Mark 1, if you're there. Open your Bibles. We see first the baptism of John. Verses 4 through 8. I'm just going to read verse 4 and 5 and verse 8 again. John appeared. That's important because that's in fulfillment of the scriptures. He appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for, or that can be understood, with reference to the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. Now, that's a big group. This all here, when I was growing up in, in our church, my pastor used to say, when you see the word all, that's all it means is all. And he was a sort, not a universalist, but an Arminian, and so he, he'd really bear down on that idea of all means all, but all doesn't mean all here. <laughs> it doesn't mean everybody in Jerusalem and Judea were here. It means that there was a massive gathering, though, that came to John from Jerusalem to be baptized. That was an arduous journey. From Jer Jerusalem, Judea is about 40 miles to where John was being baptized. And it was, what, 4,000 feet of descent? Is that correct? You've been to Jerusalem. In the anyway, I heard what I read is that from the place where Jordan, or Jordan is, where John is baptizing, up to Jerusalem is about 4,000 feet. So you go down 40 miles and you come back 40 miles uphill 
That's an arduous journey, and he's got a multitude there. Here's a little uh, background for you, too. This was a modern day, and this was a modern age, too. It was a very contemporary time. John had a lot of followers, and yet a few years later, where were they? There were very many that survived. And we need to be very cautious about things that look very big in the moment that don't have lasting influence. That's not John's ministry. His ministry was true. But so oftentimes we see an excitement. We see a crowd. We see the masses gathering and we just go along with it. Whereas we need to understand there is a bigger issue, the issue of truth at hand. And John was certainly teaching the truth. And there were many that were baptized him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And he says in verse 8, I have baptized you with water. So his main role, John's main role, was that he was a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Yahweh. And in so doing, he says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John was always preparing the way for Christ. But this is important that we understand this. John was, in a sense, the first baptizer of the church. You know, we go back, if you, if you go into Baptist history, and I'm a Baptist, so I don't, all the things I've said disparagingly about the Baptist tradition already, I'm about to say something more, perhaps, but the, the first Baptist, uh, J- John Smith, is recorded as baptizing himself because there was no other Baptist to baptize him. He baptized himself, and then he became the baptizer of other people. And it's a big dilemma in my position of the historical Baptist tradition that we have our first Baptist baptizing himself. John was the first baptizer of the church, if you will. And we'll see how that comes to pass. But that's significant for us. And that means that I take John's Baptist baptizing to be the same baptizing that happens today. And that means that the way that he baptized is important for the church today. We see here that he says that John was baptizing. The word there is baptisma. And then he says in verse 8, I have baptized, baptizo. And these Greek words, very clearly, and I'm not going to go through all of the details of why they mean this, but they very clearly mean to dunk or immerse. It's something that even, even in traditions that disagree with that, those as the central mode or the normative mode of the church for baptizing, these words absolutely mean to dunk or immerse. And it's very clear. It's one of the reasons I am convictionally a Baptist. Acts 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 38 and 39 regarding Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. It's very important the way that it's described. In verse 38 it says, and he commanded the chariot to stop. This is after the eunuch says, I believe these things. What hinders me to be baptized? And they both went down into the water, into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. And so we see this very picture going down into the water, coming out of the water in Jesus' baptism in verse 10 of Mark 1. And when he came up out of the water, that's Jesus coming up out of the water, and we'll see what happens afterwards. But I do believe the mode there is consistent with what we see, these words, baptizo, baptismai, that it means to be dunk or immerse. And that also comports with the symbolism of baptism, which is one of the things I'm going to major on today. Some of you people 
That's not a good way to, t- to describe the church. <laughs> you people. <laughs> the, we, as brethren and sisters, right? One of the, one of the wrong ways, that, the, the wrong footings that we stand on when it comes to baptism is our low view of symbolism. We have a very wretched view of symbolism. We think it belongs only to J.R.R. Tolkien. I have a mind to say something about Amazon's new Ring series and why you shouldn't watch it, but I'm not going to say anything. You know, that, that is not where symbolism and the importance of it resides. There is an importance to symbolism in Scripture. There is an absolute essential value that should be placed upon us when we think of the symbolism of baptism. It's described in Colossians 2.12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. In other words, the symbolism of baptism. When somebody is baptized, it should relate the picture of Christ's death, his burial, and resurrection. The symbol should comport with what actually happened to Jesus. That's what the scriptures say about it. And regarding my own convictions, I believe that full immersion should be practiced by the church, if at all possible. Now, I have read good arguments as to why sprinkling or or dousing, that's another form the church's practice, is appropriate in some aspects. One, One occasion was, I think it was in Siberia, Russia, during the winter, or something before they had hot water you know at their beck and call and somebody would become a believer in the church you should be baptized and let's not go outside and baptize people in those I'm from Montana originally and you get to 40 below zero and you don't want to be putting water on yourself and definitely not dunking yourself and so the church sometimes would sprinkle or would anoint in a sense of covering the person and baptized in, in water. In, in such cases, I don't think I would be as extremely opposed to those signs uh, being uh, exhibited that way, but I do think normative, the normative mode should be immersion of baptism because that's what relays the symbol that baptism is relaying to us of being united in Christ's death and his life. Well, we go from mode to method. John's message was not baptism will cleanse you from sin itself, but rather repentance. Remember, as I argued a few weeks ago, repentance means a turning, a conversion. Conversion and confessions of sins are marked by the the sign of cleansing in baptism. This is what baptism of John signified. John's baptism signified that someone had turned from their sin and to the living God by faith. Conversion is signified in baptism, especially the baptism of John here we see. Well, how important is that sign? And here's where I want you to really, if you've been somewhere else, please engage. How important is a sign in Scripture? A symbol. Not just a symbol, but this one. Baptism. How important is this? 
And here's where I think many evangelicals begin to slide away from the biblical view of the sacraments or the ordinances. Usually indifferent sacramentalists, everybody has a view of the sacraments as a Christian, but usually those who are indifferent say something like this, since baptism is merely a sign, it is not important for the saving of the soul. And as I say that, what is your conviction? Now you hear that. Since baptism is merely a sign, it is not important for the saving of the soul. If, that's, if you can say, hey, that's where I reside, then I want you to pay attention to what the scriptures say about baptism and about what it means to the saving of the soul. We who hold that are, we are justified by faith alone. I hold that. I believe that. I preach that. I call you to faith, I pray, regularly in the gospel so that by believing in Christ you will be counted as righteous in him by faith alone. But those of us who believe that are especially enticed by the sleight of hand that Water baptizing is just merely a sign. Merely a sign. Is baptism merely a sign that can be neglected, taken, or left by a professing Christian and we should all go along our merry way? Let me ask you this question as an example. You go back to Numbers chapter 21 in the Bible and you see that the people of Israel were complaining in the wilderness and God sent fiery serpents to bite them. And they were bitten by those fiery serpents. And then God set up, and this is very interesting, because God had said there are no graven images. You must not make that. In the top ten, that's number two. No, no images that convey who I am to you, because I am not made with hands, right? But then he sets up, he tells Aaron, Moses, put this brass serpent up, put it on a pole, and put it up, and tell the people, if they will look up at that serpent, they will live. Now, was that serpent that was lifted up a symbol? Was it a sign? Surely it was a symbol, it wasn't a symbol of God, but it was a symbol. They were bitten by the fiery serpent. They look at the serpent, they live. That was, the, that was the, the ultimatum for the people. That was the word of God. But why did they live when they looked at the serpent? And the sacramentalists, those who believe that there is merit in the looking, they will say, they were saved by looking at the pole in obedience to God. By that, they would say they were saved by their own meritorious act of looking as they believed by, in the grace of God. That's what the sacramentists, that's what Rome would say with regards to baptism. We're regenerated by baptism. When we partake of the sign, we're regenerated by it. It's a gracious sign, but we're regenerated. It's our merit. We're, we're gaining a standing with God by doing it. But the non-sacramentalists or the, the people that are disinterested or not interested in baptism would say 
they would have been saved without looking at the serpent. Merely if they would have believed in their heart, they would have been saved. Without looking at the serpent. But I say, I think by scripture we are beholden to say they were saved when they looked at the pole because they believed God. Do you understand the difference? They believe God, so they looked at the pole. Their faith is counted to them as righteous, and the sign has an influence as to whether or not they truly believed. But if they don't look at the sign, James, I think we would hear him saying, their faith is dead. So, you're hearing John preach in the wilderness, boldly declaring to you to believe his word, repent, turn ye, Confess your sins and be baptized. But you don't believe the sign saves you, so you won't be baptized. What are you doing in that condition? You're out there. You believe, Hey, I believe you, John. I'm not going to be baptized, though, because I'm not a sacramentalist. I don't want people believing that I went along with that so that I think that I'm meritoriously earning my way to salvation, you know, to heaven or whatever we would say. What have you done if you, if you say that? You reject John's preaching, which was the word of God. That's what you are rejecting. We hold that scripture is the final authority. Here's a prophet. Here's God's prophet, the messenger that would prepare the way for the Lord. And if you say in your heart, oh, I believe you, but I'm not going to be baptized. Do you believe? You don't. You're not believing the word of God. And we say... To ourselves too often in the modern church we're saved by faith alone therefore baptism eh, take it or leave it Lord's Supper take it or leave it it's not important take another example and this comes from the source of justification by faith not really the Holy Spirit is a source but when we think of justification by faith alone who do you think of in the New Testament Paul Paul, right? We just got done with Romans. But what does Paul say about his conversion? What is his testimony with regards to his conversion? You, to see that, go to Acts 22. Maybe we'll read a little bit more than I plan to read on that. Acts 22. Pick it up in verse 6. Here's Paul. He's telling us, he's giving his defense of who he is as an apostle, a testimony of his conversion, and his calling into ministry. Let's start in verse 3. I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Sicilia, Cilicia, sorry, brought up in the city educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, this way, that's the church, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, 
as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul is saying, I was the authority, I was the hand of the high priest and the elders. I was their their, their hand that brought their letters of authority that was going to bring them to Damascus to arrest Christians, to bring them back to stand trial and whatever happens after that. He says, I was the person anointed for that calling, opposing the church of Christ. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. You persecute God's church, Christ's church. You persecute the Lord of the church. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand of those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight, and I saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. So quickly, slow down a little bit. He says, Brother Saul. Here's Ananias speaking to Saul now, I believe, as a Christian brother. He said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to see Christ, and to hear the voice from his mouth. Here's the conversion of Paul. He appointed you for that hour, for this time, and this commitment, and this commission, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. But wait. And now, while, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's how Paul describes the testimony of his conversion from persecutor of the church to a commissioned follower of Christ. That's profound. These exact words in verse 16, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And listen to these words, calling on his name. Whose name? Go back to Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches that what is going on Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection, that first Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the church, this is the fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And in verse 21 of chapter 2, he says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
shall be saved. We love to tell sinners that message, don't we? Don't we? That's true. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That is true today for sinners. It's true tomorrow. It's true 2,000 years ago. Paul is the chiefest of sinners. He's saying, my conversion, my salvation is so that you in your sin won't despair that God won't save you in how wicked you are. If you will call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just saying the name out loud. It's not saying the name in a prayer merely. It is reverencing Christ for who he is. And the fulfillment, it says, shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, that's the same Lord that Paul cried out and said, Lord, who are you? And then said, Lord, what will you have me to do after he's converted? This is that Lord. And then in verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized Every one of you, what? In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. So Ananias says, baptism is a symbol of you calling on the name of Christ. And you cannot fulfill your calling that God set you apart for until you take that sign for yourself. You know what that implies? That apart from baptism, you don't call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Saul, that's what that implies. Because the same language, the same calling, is here in chapter 2 by Peter twice saying, Those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Oh, by the way, when you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, that is calling on the name of Jesus Christ. How does that comport? Well, Colossians chapter 2, chapter 2, 3 says that faith is why we are baptized. Faith in Jesus Christ. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, the gospel, are baptized believing the gospel. You put on Christ in baptism by faith. And so here we we have this, the the importance of baptism in front of us. If, If you're today one of those Christians who say, you know, I believe in the gospel, baptism is merely a sign, I think we have the word of God saying to you, you may confess with your mouth that you have Jesus as Lord, But if you reject this sign and symbol that God has given to the church, you cannot be part of the church, one, and you cannot be commissioned by God, two. Is that important? You know what? We can go further than Paul. We can go deeper than Paul. We can go to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of Paul. Jesus spent 30 years on this earth before he entered into ministry. And he didn't enter into ministry until he was baptized. Part of the reason I love Mark 
I love Matthew and Luke and all they have to say. There's a lot they have to say before we ever get to where Mark goes. But part of the reason why I think we should be drawn to Mark is because everything he says is absolutely essential and powerful in the limitations that he said. You know, when you use less words to describe something, if you can describe it succinctly with less words, sometimes that's more impactful, right? That's why I wish I could do that. Pray for me. But go to Mark. Go back to Mark. Go back to Mark. Second point of the sermon is Jesus baptized by John. Remember, we're looking at the importance of baptism. Jesus baptized by John, verses 9 and 11. In those days came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John. In those days, Jesus came not from Jerusalem or Judea. He came from home. Nazareth of Galilee is his home. This is the first time we see Jesus in Mark's narrative. And the way he describes it is Jesus is coming from home and he's going to start his ministry. Imagine this, 30 years on earth, Jesus leaves home, now he's going to start ministry. And what does he do? He goes to John and he says, I need to be baptized. <laughs> Jesus and what does John say? If you go to Matthew, what does John say? Uh, far be it from me, Lord. I need you. You need to baptize me. If anyone didn't need to be baptized, it was not you. And I'm preaching to the church, and I trust you've been baptized. And I'm not trying to get on your case if you haven't been baptized in a, in a mean way, but I want you to see this. Jesus had no sin. John said rightly, you don't need to be baptized. He was the one who baptism didn't represent his own removal from sin. It represented that he was identifying with you in your sin. And Jesus said in Matthew, again, he says, let's do it. We need to fulfill all righteousness. Do it for that sake. But we see something so remarkable because Jesus goes, the first thing he does is he goes to John and he's baptized by John in the Jordan. In verse 10 we see, and he came up out of the water immediately. He saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Two things happen here. After Jesus is baptized. Actually, more than that happens after Jesus is baptized. But these two essential things happen. One, the Holy Spirit comes down. John says the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. Full measure. Jesus is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that indwelling meant something. We cannot overlook the importance of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus was led by the Spirit. He, uh, Romans chapter 8, 
says all those who are the sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. Verse 14, I believe. That's true first of Jesus. Because the very next thing we see of Jesus after his baptism is the Spirit leading him out into the wilderness. Jesus doesn't begin his ministry until he is baptized and filled by the Spirit. The second thing that happens after he is baptized is that the Father, there are only two times do we hear or do we see the Father speaking in regards to Jesus. And both times, he makes Jesus stand out. And here he confirms, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism demonstrates that his ministry would not be marked by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father until he was baptized. Mark is saying that everything he said about Jesus, verse 1, you remember that? In the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And everything he said about John being the preparer of the way for the Lord is culminating here. And it begins with the baptism of Jesus. Jesus' baptism begins his ministry. And before he ascends to heaven, what does he tell the church to do? Go into the world and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, and he tells the church, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Holy Trinity. And we think baptism is take it or leave it, because it's a sign. And it's a symbol. It's the word of God. And it marks whether or not you truly have an entrance in the kingdom with God. Now you say, wait a minute. What about the thief on the cross? We always go to the thief on the cross as the exception. Why should I have to be baptized if he wasn't? May I suggest to you that if Jesus were to tell you, today you will be with me in paradise without being baptized, you should be comfortable with his word. Otherwise, you should be baptized and rejoice in it. That's what I want to say. The importance of baptism is that it marks our union with Christ and the power of Christ at work in us. The power of his death to forgive us of our sin. The power of his ongoing life to give us his spirit to give us. What does the Acts 1.8 says? You will be witnesses after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That's when you will receive power. 
Your baptism marks that that is so. Now, baptism, if you don't have faith in Christ, if you don't repent of your sin, will add nothing to your standing before God. It will be vain as a sign. But if you truly repent, if you truly believe, it becomes what the old theologians, and still we should use the term, as a seal. God stamping upon you that you belong to him and he sees Christ in you and you in Christ. That's wonderful. That's essential. That is not something that we can take or leave. It's something we must rejoice in. It's something we must depend on. Saying that we are, what does Paul say, the Christian life, the ongoing Christian life? That the ongoing Christian, as we think of our life and the, the, the resistance to sin and the putting on of the new man and walking in righteousness, what is that based on? Romans 6, our baptism. Oh, it's just a sign. It's just a symbol. May God give us faith to understand that when God gives a sign and a symbol like this that comports and agrees with our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he did, that we take it and we rejoice in it and we marvel at his mercy because of it and we gladly put on Christ. Let me say this as I close. If you go into India, the Middle East, Pakistan, you go into those cultures and you are baptized, you are marked. You can say all you want that you have a high view of Jesus in Islam. They have a fairly high view of Jesus. I mean, in, in a sense, it's always a low view of Jesus unless you see him in Scripture. But they think he's a great prophet. They give glory to his name. But if you're baptized, that symbol means something to them. It means you do not belong to Islam. You belong to Christianity. You are a follower of Jesus. You believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You're probably a Trinitarian. Bless your heart and your soul. And they'll kill you for it some places. Not every place. Hindu, Hinduism, which is the least tolerant, perhaps, of all religions of the world, that we, don't, we think we play around with it in Kauai. See people with the gods, with, you know, Hare Krishna, and that's, he's a horrendously violent and, and bloodthirsty religion. You get baptized and your family knows it, it's honor killings. It's, it's the most gruesome kind of killings over there. Because baptism marks your entrance into the Christian faith. It is a sign that says you are God's. And you belong to Jesus Christ. And think of this. Christ did not need to be baptized. It didn't add to his merit one iota, and it doesn't add to our merit before God, our baptism. Christ is sufficient, but our baptism signifies, and our faith believes that Christ is sufficient. That's why we're baptized. He was baptized. He identifies with us in his baptism. Let me ask you this. 
Will you identify with him in your baptism?